If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent covering Democrats for McClatchy. And I'm Katie Glick, a national political correspondent covering Republicans. It's ground game week at Beyond the Bubble. New York saw an upset in its Democratic primary last week when 28-year-old Latina Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beat incumbent Congressman Joe Crowley. To give you an idea of how surprising that is, Crowley has been serving in Congress for 10 terms. Luckily, Dan Malloy from Aussie spoke with Ocasio-Cortez in February about her long shot run. It is like simultaneously so exciting and terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Daniel's also gonna help us break down just what's happening in Arizona's Senate race as he continues our ground game project. Then our colleague Andrea will join both of us from Texas to focus on how much an endorsement from President Trump actually moves the dial in a Republican primary. All right, Katie, you ready? Let's do it. Does it ever seem to you that President Trump has done more than any president in just 16 months? You can't let the critics get in the way of your dreams. When people are prepared to fight, there's nothing that we cannot do. We have a very different view of what America ought to look like. Our Republican friends better look out. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. You didn't know what you were getting into. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. No idea. So that voice you just heard was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's. She is the new star of not just the Democratic Party, but really the liberal movement or progressives nationwide. You know, she was sitting there talking to Aussie politics editor and friend of the show, I should say, Daniel Malloy, who joins us now. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be here, Alex. So, obviously, when you sat down uh, and talked with her in February, you knew that this was going to happen. You knew from that moment on that she was going to knock off Joe Crowley in a primary. Tell us a little bit about why you think she was able to pull off the shock upset. No, I, I can't claim to be that much of a political forecaster. You know, it was interesting. When, when we met in February, this was a sort of interesting moment for Ocasio-Cortez in that she was just quitting her job that week to campaign full time. And so she was just sort of coming to grips with the reality of, of what was happening. And her job had been she had been a bartender. She had been a bartender before about a year earlier. She actually worked at a nonprofit as well. Still an unlikely position from which to launch this uh primary challenge of historic importance, if you listen to some. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it was interesting to, to spend some time with her. You know, she's just kind of a normal 28-year-old. She, she didn't have that Congress member sheen about her or anything like that. But at the time, she wasn't even sure she could get on the ballot. I mean, New York has like really high bar for getting on the ballot. So she was out there getting petition signatures and, and getting people together to get on the ballot. And she was sort of talking a little bit about the Crowley machine and this and that. And, and sort of what, what struck me, I guess, at the time, I mean, I certainly didn't think she was going to win necessarily. But, you know, it seemed to be a real race and a real fight just because how low a turnout it was going to be. And as we saw election night, that was the case. And as well as kind of, you know, her identity as a young Latina woman really sort of represented the district a lot better than than the, you know, middle aged Irish white guy. 
because, you know, the, the district is majority Latino as well as a lot of immigrants as well and people of color. And so she was sort of getting out there and finding these unlikely voters, which is sort of, I think, the ticket nationwide for, for Democrats this year to try to find out people, you know, not convince the swing voters who normally turn out in midterms, but find people who don't normally come out. And she was really able to do that very effectively. I mean, it seems like the, the, the victory was significant for several reasons. You mentioned, I mean, she's a, a 28-year-old Latina. There are very few millennials. Frankly, there are very f- few Hispanics in Congress. You do have a situation where there are, you know, members like Joe Crowley, Democrats who represent these heavily Democratic districts that aren't necessarily representative of, of their districts. Crowley, in this case, like you said, an older white man. But it also, it was, you know, the, the policies that Ocasio-Cortez embraced I mean, you, you can kind of run down the line, everything from abolishing ICE to a jobs guarantee to a full-fledged single-payer health care system. I mean, she is someone who is an actual socialist, you know, doesn't, doesn't really mince words about that. And I think the question for a lot of people coming out of this primary is, is this a sign of where the Democratic Party wants to go, not just from, you know, a, a racial identity or age perspective, but also from a policy perspective? Is is socialism something that the, the broader Democratic Party is ready to embrace in a way that it hasn't in decades or maybe even ever? That's an interesting question and will sort of be borne out across the country as these primaries play out and, and in the general election. You know, you see, you know, I know Republicans, for example, are, are excited that, that someone like Kara Eastman won in Nebraska. I think that'll be easier to pick up there by, by someone further left winning in a primary. I think you're going to see, you know, she was very much in the mold of, of Bernie Sanders. She was an organizer for Bernie Sanders and is even further left than Bernie Sanders on a lot of issues, uh, abolish ICE and, and some other things. So I think it'll just be kind of a race by race thing. And, and sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't. I think, you know, you pointed out on Twitter, you had a good point the other night about, you know, how does Lipinski win and Joe Crowley lose, right? Because Dan Lipinski, as has been discussed on this show, was very blue dog, pro-life Democrat. And yet he was able to win his primary. But in this case, Crowley lost. And I think that it may be, you know, not so much about policy, but about, uh, you know, who's running the best race and about identity in a lot of cases. I mean, when you when you look who's out there marching in the streets this year, be it with women's marches or the immigration marches or anything else, it's young people, it's people of color and it's women. The Democratic Party, that's what it looks like now. And so those people are going to do better, particularly in districts like New York 14, where they make up majority of the population. The one thing that is important to keep in mind is that the path to the majority for the Democrats does not run through the Bronx. This is a very safe Democratic seat. And if Democrats, in fact, are going to take the House back, then they, in fact, do need to be competitive in the kinds of districts where running as a socialist could could present a pretty big problem. You know, districts like Charlotte area, where uh, we, we have a young, very moderate Democratic veteran, Dan McCready, running, like Illinois 12. Um, which is a race where Democrats historically have had some success, but but President Trump won by 15 points by suburban uh, Orange County, which is uh, a bastion uh, that, that has traditionally been very Republican. Uh, it flipped, it supported Hillary Clinton, but Orange County... Hillary Clinton voters are, are not necessarily the kind of voters who are going to be inclined to want to vote for someone who identifies as a socialist. So the point that we have been hearing from a lot of Democrats in, in the last week or so is that certainly you know, this is someone who captured a lot of energy. Certainly, she's reflective of where perhaps a lot of the base is. But at the same time, uh, the party's got to be a little br- bigger than that if they're, in fact, going to be, you know, be able to take back the House as much as her district is uh, very different from a lot of the House districts uh, that 
make up really the, the House battleground. No question that her race did show where a lot of the energy is in the Democratic Party right now, and that is on the left. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, this is kind of where the Democratic Party is right now. It's at a crossroads because, and we'll talk a little bit more about Illinois 12 later on the show and, and some of the Orange County races that Democrats are competing. You know, everyone has kind of decided that what came between 2008 and 2016 didn't really work for the Democratic Party, right? I mean, they lost a historic number of seats. They are at a historic low point in terms of their representation, not just in Congress, but all across the country. And so people are really having this big discussion and debate within the Democratic Party about how is it best to reclaim those seats. And that's how you get ideas like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's, you know, the, the jobs guarantee. For instance, I mean, you're talking about a proposal. The bottom line is spending hundreds of billions of dollars to making sure everybody who wants a job can get a job. It's a pretty radical idea. I wouldn't call it a mainstream idea in the Democratic Party, but it's getting close. It's something that wasn't discussed really at all except on the fringes and certainly not in any way by mainstream media outlets that now reporters like me are having to grapple with and talk about not just explain it to the public, but really try to grapple with the politics and possibly some of the consequences that Katie just described. You know, And I'll say, like, Donald Trump is president. It makes me hesitant to say that something won't work. My model and my impression of what would work on a national scale in American politics was blown up in, in 2016. And I think there is more space now for a sort of robust progressivism, economic populism that wasn't there before. But, you know, there are there, there are limits. I mean, Daniel, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, when you look at the appeal of some of these ideas, in part, it's because they are they are simple and easy to understand, right? A jobs guarantee, and it's not going to be similar to the policies prescriptions you've seen from national Democrats in the past, which is like my eight point plan to tackle X, Y, or Z. I mean, these things are coming down to very basic free college, for example, which was a big pillar of the Bernie Sanders platform and is becoming much more mainstream in the Democratic Party. Abolish ICE. Republicans used to have the monopoly on abolishing federal agencies and potentially forgetting to name which ones that they <laughs> that they remember to abolish. But uh, Democrats now getting in on the game with getting rid of ICE. So, you know, I think it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. And if you want to take it back to the Tea Party election of 2010, what you're going to see, I think, is a lot of Democrats get elected on a socialism-ish platform like Ocasio-Cortez. A lot of Democrats get elected in some of these districts that, that Katie's talking about, NC9, Illinois 12, and then they're going to have to come together. They're going to have some real problems if they're in the majority of passing you know, any kind of legislation that they want to get through, even with a Democratic president, potentially, as we've seen with the Republicans in the House. You know, and I've heard some Democrats already start to mention they're getting a little concerned about their party overpromising what they can do legislatively, not unlike the situation the Republicans have found themselves in for years when it comes to repealing Obamacare. There's a little concern. I, I will say this. I mean, just in, I, I guess if you want the theory of the case of why this kind of platform can work, you know, I sat down with Ro Khanna, a congressman uh, from California, who oddly enough endorsed <laughs> both candidates in the New York 14 race, Joe Crowley and Ocasio Cortez. We can talk about that more later. But he, he offered, I thought was, and he's about, he's someone who's about to roll out his own jobs guarantee proposal, the House version of it at least. And his point was, look, you know, you have a lot of voters, a big segment of the electorate that's available to both parties. They're persuadable voters who are confused, who are unhappy, who are worried about their current station in life and about their life being worse than their parents or, you know, God forbid, their children's life being worse than theirs, that things aren't getting better. And 
to meet that, you can't have these incrementalist proposals. You know, it's about the politics of this. And, you know, Donald Trump does offer a very clear vision of why the, the, the country has these problems. And it is rooted in a lot of ways in, in immigration and illegal immigrants either taking your jobs or committing crimes. And to him, you know, the merits of that aside, that that is a compelling vision and a, and a clear vision for people. Democrats need to offer something equally as compelling and big and bold and saying that we want to give, you know, the child income tax credit like a 3% boost. It doesn't exactly break through, which maybe it was a problem with Hillary Clinton's and the 2016 election. So that's a theory of the case. I'm not saying that that necessarily is a great idea politically across the country. I, I think there's some some merit to debate there. And, you know, I've also spoken with uh, some Democrats recently whose sort of big takeaway from this race was Democrats, progressives are extremely angry. If that hasn't been made clear by, you know, just about every special election in the Trump era, you know, this seemed to further drive it home. It's even sort of beyond the the specific policy proposals, although certainly it does seem like in in some corners we're already seeing, you know, litmus tests on some issues like abolishing ICE uh, suddenly. But the progressive base, much as we've seen on the Republican side, uh, you know, certainly the, in the Obama era, they are very, very angry, and they want someone who is uh, effectively able to channel that anger. Okay, well, let's let's talk about a race in a completely different part of the country, uh, in Arizona. You know, even before we reach the general election in Arizona, which again is going to be one of the top Senate battlegrounds, one of really two, maybe three pickup opportunities that Democrats really see on the map. There's a Republican primary. Daniel Ozzie has been reporting on this. In particular, I think looking at one interesting study there, Republicans are really concerned about Kelly Ward. Some of you will remember she ran against John McCain in 2016, ran unsuccessfully. She is seen as kind of a far-right extreme Republican, not someone party leaders in D.C. want. But Daniel, again, Ozzie had this interesting story quoting, uh, citing a study saying that their method of attack against Kelly Ward maybe isn't the best. Tell, Tell us more about that. Sure. So there's some new research that we spotlighted in Ozzy the other day, basically talking about how political attack ads are more effective when coming from the candidate themselves rather than the super PACs, which sort of goes against the conventional wisdom, right, of, of you would you would think that I wouldn't want to get down in the mud necessarily um, and, you know, lob attacks at my opponent, but I would let my super PAC, you know, Americans for America do all the dirty work here. And, and as it turns out, voters see through that. Voters don't trust these outside groups, and they actually do put more credence in the message coming from the candidates themselves. So that's interesting, particularly in Arizona, because so much of the super PAC attacks have been coming against Kelly Ward. And they did, you know, they, they've been coming for years now. You may remember Kelly Ward as the, the sort of arch conservative who ran against John McCain in 2016, lost, and McCain won. Now she's back. She said she was going to challenge Jeff Flake. Well, then Jeff Flake said he's not going to run again. So now it's Kelly Ward versus Martha McSally, the congresswoman from the area, who is a pretty strong conservative herself, but has been kind of wrapped up in the immigration issue. And and Kelly Ward has gone hard to the right on immigration. You know, she's a she's a build the wall type person. And, you know, on the family separation issue where McSally has tried to, you know, at times, you know, muddy the waters a little bit. uh, Kelly Ward has been very, very aggressive in saying, you know, we've got to do this as a deterrent. When a colleague of mine was reporting uh, down with Ward in Arizona, when she said, uh, if carrying a blue bag across the border would give you preferential treatment, 
then you'd see everybody bringing in a blue bag. And so she says, unfortunately, our immigration laws have made children into that blue bag. So that's kind of how she sees the issue in that, you know, this is a black and white thing, secure the border, you know, separate the families if you have to as a deterrent. And this is, you know, Arizona, which is a ground zero along with Texas for, for a lot of what's going on. So really interesting race. It's, it's being divided along the lines of uh, immigration right now. That, that, that analogy might give you some insight why party leaders are not exactly thrilled about the idea <laughs> of Kelly Ward being the Republican nominee. Daniel, do people think she can win? I know because there's a third candidate, of course, and there's Joe Arpaio, who's also running, sort of, we, we, we think. <laughs> um, do, do people really think that Martha McSally is in trouble? Yeah, I mean, fresh off his presidential pardon, Joe Arpaio is uh, purportedly <laughs> running, and uh, he would, you know, siphon some of those uh, hard right votes away from Ward. So maybe the the best thing for McSally might be Arpaio's presence in the race. I think, you know, really it's it's a close one. Polls show it being pretty close down there. It's hard to get a great read on it at this stage ahead of the the primary in August. But I think what you're going to see in Arizona is another test. You know, we're seeing kind of both parties rebel against their establishment picks, particularly when you're talking about for Congress and, and the Senate. Governor's races are a little bit of a different story, but still, this is going to be a real a real interesting test Republican Party. And if, if Ward wins, that makes it even stronger chance that the Kirsten Cinema can pick it up for the Democrats in November. Right. Again, Democrats need to win a, a net of two seats to retake control of, of the Senate in 2019. And Arizona, there's pretty much no path to that without winning Arizona at this point. Arizona and Nevada are the top two. And of course, they would have to hold on to a host of deep red Senate seats, which is certainly no guarantee for the Democratic Party uh, whatsoever. But speaking of control of the Senate, Katie, there was a little bit of news last week about the Supreme Court. I don't know if you remember Anthony Kennedy, oh, I think, yeah, yeah something vaguely. like that. Yeah, I vaguely, I vaguely remember that. It was only like 307 news cycles ago. Yes, yes. Um, but so Anthony Kennedy, of course, retires. It creates a vacancy. Republicans have already said, including the president, that they are going to move at lightning speed on this and set someone up for confirmation before November's elections. There are a lot of political dynamics at play here. Uh, Republicans see you know, they see that as a really motivating issue for their voters in some of these red states. And so, you know, they see a really good opportunity to pressure these Democrats, who, of course, will also be feeling the squeeze from progressives who are really alarmed. I, I know you've heard a lot of this as well, Alex, but really alarmed about the prospect of, of essentially, in their view, losing another seat on the court, the ramifications for Roe v. Wade. You know, certainly they are looking to mobilize. So these Democratic senators in red states, they're always feeling the squeeze. They are primed to really feel it on this issue. You know, you ask a typical Republican voter, um, you know, how do you think the Trump presidency is going? And they may say, oh, we wish he'd tweet a little bit less, but man, do we love Judge Gorsuch. And they see an opportunity, Republican strategists, to even further sort of amplify that sentiment and, you know, give Republicans even more reason in their view to come out and, and you know, think and protect a, a Republican majority for helping shepherd through another conservative Supreme Court justice. Of course, the flip side of that, uh, and some people make this argument as well, is that if you can sort of get someone through before the midterms, you know, are people going to be as angry and as motivated to turn out on the Republican side if they feel like, like the court has already been taken care of? Although I don't think we'll have that anger issue on the Democratic side for sure. Absolutely. And I had one House Democratic strategist who swore to me that he really thinks that this could be a positive on the House, and in particular, Republican-leaning suburban women who on choice, if they really do feel like it is threatened, that is something that can get them to flip. 
and flip hard for the Democratic Party, which would exacerbate an already big problem for the GOP. A lot of college-educated women is really their problem demographic right now more, more than any other. One of, one of the, I think, the underappreciated aspects of this is, is that it's going to impact governor's races. You're seeing in Florida, Gwen Graham basically put out a press release saying, if, if one of my Republican opponents gets elected, you know, abortion will be illegal in Florida. So, like, you've got gubernatorial candidates saying, we're just going to assume Roe goes down. You need a Democrat in the governor's office to protect that in our state. I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic you're going to see play out. Hey, Daniel, uh, like I said, friend of the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for coming. Always a pleasure, guys. Talk to you soon. Okay, so we're going to go now to Andrea Drush, co-host of this program, who is in Fort Worth on assignment. Can we say that? On assignment? Visiting visiting the, the hometown newspaper uh, that she writes for. Oh, yeah, we can say it on assignment. <laughs> yeah, we could say that. Uh, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, of course. Uh, a- Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the, the show remotely this time. Hey, thanks, Alex. So we want to talk a little bit about a story, Katie, that you wrote. You were in Southern Illinois, Illinois' 12th district with Republican incumbent Mike Bost and his Democratic challenger, Brendan Kelly. And the question you were trying to answer is, can Democrats win over a district like this, which is full of people who actually voted for President Obama? Twice. Voted for them twice, but then swung pretty hard for Donald Trump in 2016. Katie, what's the answer? Not to put you on the spot. What's the answer? How are Democrats going to do it? <laughs> well, uh, as you said uh, smartly much earlier in the show, uh, well out of the business of making predictions in this political environment or ever. But what I can tell you is that Brendan Kelly, who is a top Democratic recruit, is doing everything in his power to avoid antagonizing Trump voters. Uh, you know, I went to a town hall with him that was full of very angry Democratic activists. It's who, a great opening anecdote of your story. Oh, thanks for reading. But a bunch of these folks were sort of hurling epithets, you know, just kind of into the room about Trump. And they were getting worked up together. And, and Kelly, you know, tried to engage with them. And he pointed out that folks in his district, the, the majority of them had voted for a Democratic senator, but they'd all, uh, Tammy Duckworth, but had also voted for Donald Trump. But no one in the room wanted to engage. And so he actually sort of pushed back and said, you know, I, I think people in this district and in this country have been angry for a long time. They've been angry at Bush and Obama and now at Trump. And, and, and I don't think anger serves anybody. So he was really actually trying to remove a little bit of blame from Trump, which is not something you hear a lot of Democrats do. So he is certainly threading a very careful needle there when, when he talks about the president. And then when it comes to policy matters, um, he is uh, someone who, when I pressed him on this, uh, actually suggested he would not support an assault weapons ban. He's someone who is comfortable with a border wall. Uh, he believes that there needs to be more border security. And, you know, he said Trump's going to call whatever he wants. He can call it a wall. But, but you know, he is someone who does support more border security along uh, with taking a more conciliatory, supportive approach to, to dreamers, kids who were brought here undocumented at an early age. And so on a whole host of policy issues, as well as rhetorically, uh, he is someone who's trying to avoid antagonizing Trump supporters while also saying, you know, this district has been suffering economically for a long time. It's time for a change. A little, little bit different than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's approach. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. And this district, as you know, have in your story, it's, they're not just a, an Obama voting district, but also a Tammy Duckworth district. And we keep repeating this over and over again on this show, but that model that Democrats are pointing to with veteran candidates that have some more credibility with Trump, it seems like, than others in their party. Do people bring that up a lot when they're talking to him? 
Well, uh, Duckworth, of course, were worth noting, a uh, veteran herself um, lost her legs while serving as a Democratic senator and won at the same time as when President Trump was on the ballot. And so, you know, certainly um, a lot of Democrats with whom I've spoken have suggested that in some of these very pro-Trump districts, what actually does open the door a little bit for some of these Democratic candidates is being able to say, hey, before I'm a Democrat, before I'm a politician, I'm a veteran, I served, here's my story. And, and that does seem to get people to listen a little bit more carefully uh, than, than they might otherwise uh, do with other candidates. And I would note, I saw that even um, done in a Republican primary in South Texas earlier this year, the young candidate Dan Crenshaw, he had been a Trump critic on Twitter, and people asked him about Trump in some of the town halls that he was holding, but it seemed to like work both ways for a Republican, too, to, to bring up their own military history and talk about sort of country above party a little bit there. And so for the other piece of ground game that we are hoping will give us a little more insight about these races ahead of November, we're looking to some specific groups of voters that also political strategists have sort of indicated would be the bellwether of, of where these races are going, concentrated in some of the most competitive districts. And Alex, you found another group of these voters out in California recently, the Romney-Clinton voters. Uh, what are those folks talking about right now? Yeah, their concerns are a little bit different than I think what Katie found in, in Illinois. I mean, you're talking about, it's funny, you're talking about a very wealthy area, a very diverse area, and you're talking about a lot of basically moderate Republicans who usually do vote GOP straight ticket, who look at President Trump's behavior, and I really do think it comes down to his behavior as much as it is his policies sometimes, and they're repulsed. I had one one man who has actually served the various like Republican boards, you know, for Governor Schwarzenegger and things like that, who told me, I mean, in no uncertain terms that he thinks democracy is on the line because of Donald Trump. And it's a very different concern. It's not necessarily as rooted in economics as you'll see in, in other parts of the country. Because this is a, a district, this is California 45. Mimi Walters is the Republican incumbent. And I had met with this when I was out there earlier in June. Uh, I met with this uh, Democratic city councilwoman from Irvine, sits in the middle of the district, the biggest city in the district. And I was like, well, you know, surely just because like any, you know, districts get stereotyped all the time. There are poor areas of this district, right? And she said, no, 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 no. Everyone here is wealthy. Uh, everyone, <laughs> just about everyone has has money, you know, and, and certainly that is not representative of most of America, but it is representative of a handful of swing districts and the, basically these new suburban battlegrounds that President Trump has opened up because of uh, a lot of, again, these these voters' concerns with his, with his behavior and some of his policies. And, you know, the interesting thing is, and if you really drill down to California 45, the interesting part of it is the Democrats nominated a Elizabeth Warren style progressive candidate. And I say that because she literally co-authored a few books with Elizabeth Warren. You know, she is someone who believes in single payer health care that progressives across the country have really rallied behind her candidacy. Her name is Katie Porter. And it's this really interesting test of whether a candidate like that can win in, in a district that you know, four or five years ago, even no one would have considered a battleground. You know, Orange County is, in a lot of ways, has been the uh, heart and soul of the Republican Party for decades. Um, it is changing, and it is certainly making a new battleground. The question is whether Democrats in this particular district and in others. You know, we had mentioned Kara Eastman earlier on the show. You know, another really someone who believes in a very sort of muscular progressivism. You know, are, can these kind of candidates win over these suburban voters? And that's that's really what's at at stake here. 
And just so fascinating uh, how Trump has scrambled the midterms map. You know, when I was in Illinois 12, um, again, the, a place that used to be sort of a, an industrial hub that, that, that has struggled quite a bit economically over the years, you know, there people said, oh, Romney was the candidate of the rich. Um, and, and it was only Trump with his sort of populism and, and his promotion of things like steel tariffs that really opened the door for a Republican for them, at least at the presidential level. Whereas in Orange County, like, they love Mitt Romney, right? But it's Trump and his behavior as you said, and, and the rhetoric and, and what people there maybe see as some, some divisiveness and chaos that has maybe opened the door for Democrats there, certainly did with Hillary Clinton. And I guess we'll see if that translates down ballot this cycle, which, of course, did not last cycle. Well, and Alex, you bring up an interesting point that this uh, the Romney-Clinton voter is is more typical in these new battlegrounds that Democrats need to cast a wide net this cycle. But a lot of the places that they're looking to that are uh, not traditional battlegrounds on the House map, it's going to rely a lot on these people because they're looking at places where Clinton overperformed, and this is a big piece of casting a wide net this time. I mean, it's one of the, like the, the sort of central questions to me about the midterm elections is whether or not you see Democrats begin to favor one kind of a district over another? Do they start to think, consider California 45 a better opportunity than a place like Illinois 12 or vice versa? And most strategists will, will swear that they don't see a distinction. You know, there, there are different routes to winning those seats, certainly, but they see them both as, uh, as both categories as, as likely Democratic victories or just as likely as the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just really curious over the next four months whether that stays or whether that the fact that we are talking about very different demographic mixes here, that that causes the, the party to really start to favor and lean hev- more heavily on these suburban districts or, again, some of the places where they've had Democratic nominees more recently. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what this race may show us is the extent to which 2016 and the Trump coalition what was kind of an aberration or a realignment. Yeah, given the side-by-side of these two races, what do y'all think? Which one's uh, looking better for Democrats right now? <laughs> Josh, you're putting us on yeah, the Yeah, I think we're, we're out of the prediction business, right? I think that was the mandate of earlier this uh, this show, right? I, I, I think so. I, I, I honestly don't know. I really I really don't know. I could see the cases for, for both right now, if I think Maybe they rely a little bit more heavily on the suburban path, mm-hmm. but boy, I don't, I don't feel good about that prediction at all. Yeah, I mean, if you look at how much Republicans are already spending in places like Illinois 12, I mean, they are have reserved millions of dollars in fall TV time already, uh, which is a sign that they expect that that's going to be a serious battleground. Uh, so, well, we, we have no shortage of races to keep us busy, I think, this cycle. Great. Okay, so it is time for everyone's favorite segment. Maybe just my favorite segment. I'm not really sure anymore. It's definitely just definitely just my favorite segment. The lightning round, of course. Everyone identifies a person or issue of interest for 2018 or maybe even 2020. You, I don't know. You tell me, Andrea. You're up first. Sure. So speaking of who is coming to Congress, we uh, just elected a new congressman in Texas this weekend. Uh, Republican Michael Cloud is coming in to fill the remainder of Blake Farenthold's term. He's uh, one of the congressmen who was swept out over harassment allegations uh, earlier this year. And this is a district down in Corpus Christi area. But compared to other special elections this year, this one uh, didn't really feel very special at all. The most attention it got was uh, some complaints from Texans that the governor spent money to have this election. It's a part of the state that was hit by the hurricane earlier this year, he argued that they needed a member of Congress to fill out that term. He has to obviously defend it again in November. But of all of our retirements and open seats in Texas, most of them you can already, after our primary, tell who's coming. Here we've got one joining us in D.C. 11 months or uh, four months early. 
Okay. Katie, you're up. Tapping my New York ties at where I am currently based these days, I'm going to say Cynthia Nixon, who is running a primary against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. I love New York, but something has to change. My big question is, how does her race change, if it does at all, post the AOC victory? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's win uh, injected a lot of uh, energy and enthusiasm and and optimism into folks uh, on the left, the suggestion that if she could do it there, maybe others can do it too. So do we start seeing some some tangible implications for Cynthia Nixon uh, challenging Cuomo from the left as well? It seems like a primary challenge that was starting to flag a little bit and maybe has new right. relevance now this week after, after her victory. Absolutely. So mine is Jason Crow. He is a nominee in Colorado's 6th District, and I'm highlighting him because he also won his primary last week uh, on the same day that Ocasio-Cortez did. A working-class upbringing put the heart and fight in Jason Crow. He has a little bit of a different background. Again, another veteran, big shocker for a House Democratic recruit. And he actually beat a, a progressive challenger, Levi Tilleman, who really didn't gain any traction in that suburban Denver seat and really, I think, is emblematic of for as much attention as the New York 14 race got, and deservedly so, you know, socialists haven't taken over the party just yet. There are a lot of moderates, more business-oriented Democrats like Jason Crow, who have had a lot of success and will be, really will determine in November whether or not the party takes a majority. So Jason Crow, my Democrat to watch. Well, we covered a lot of ground on that show. I think it went pretty well, though, Katie. I think so as well. Thanks very much for having me. Hey, Andrea, thank you for coming on the show remotely. Hopefully see you in in the seat next to me next week. Yep, I'll be back next week. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.